Welcome to Career in Ruins, where we'd better hurry up because John's off to the pub in half an hour. Minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hiya, Derek. How are you doing, mate? All right. I'm not too bad. Just had some very exciting news that we're oh, yeah. uh, we're doing some more field work in Greece this year. So watch uh-huh. this space. All of our um our, our future followers and followers will know that we've got some exciting stuff going on there. Some of which we can't talk about yet, but we'll do soon. That's fantastic <laughs> news. So what you've literally just got that news through about the door. 15 minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> so is that more geophysics? Yep. Some resistivity. So we did a resistivity season last year, which will hopefully share some interesting details with Time Team and Career and Ruins fans soon. Oh. But it didn't go quite as well as I'd hoped. And John will know all about this because resistivities is one of those techniques that requires nice conditions. And it was absolutely saturated when we were there. So we had nothing but nonsense for two, two bleak weeks. of. And it was grey and very, very grey. It was, it was. <laughs> so we get to do that all again in spring and see if it comes out better. But mm, uh, that's it, amazing news. <laughs> it is amazing news. Congratulations, buddy. Oh, so how are you doing? I'm good. It feels weird that it's been a week since we course up, but it, it's, it's flown by. A big, huge thanks to all our listeners since we kicked off our new series. The uptake and the support and the interest has been fantastic. So thank you all for tuning in. And we hope you found the second podcast with Natalie just as interesting. And this third podcast with our our special guest today, John Gator, just as interesting but um yeah it's been it's been a good week thank you mate so what's been on your mind this week has anything caught your attention there was something i think quite timely for uh, today's discussion as well i i was having a peruse of the bbc news um, website during my lunch break today i saw the radar satellite stunning map of uk and ireland i don't know if you saw this Ooh, no tell me about it so there's this amazing novasar uh, satellite that's, that's doing radar mapping of uh of the world at the moment and the images are so big they can only share uh, low resolution images of the uk <laughs> that old chestnut <laughs> but um but the, the the technique's amazing so whereas um traditional satellite imagery uses your standard similar bands of lights that we see with our eyes except in England, we have a lot of cloud cover. <laughs> you know, you know how it rains a lot. Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you know how it's been grey since November through till now. <laughs> um, so, so satellite imagery is great <laughs> when there's no clouds, but in England, that's just a bit naff. Whereas this this radar um, satellite offers techniques to be able to map and image the Earth's surface uh, through that cloud cover using uh, radio waves. So, um, the images that come out are beautiful, and that they're they're saying in this article that um, you can actually map individual bridges and houses and towns and the resolution of the imagery should be interesting so i'm really excited to see what the applications of this this new imagery and this high-tech technique is for the historic environment and archaeology that's really exciting. It's really people exciting. having parties in their back garden. I mean, business meetings in the back garden. Well, you've not been introduced yet. <laughs> I was going to say, say this uh, this lunch break at work when you were sort of perusing the BBC News website, did you have cheese and wine at the time? <laughs> no one told me it was a party. <laughs> but yeah, I thought super cool technology 
amazing applications for for archaeology and and i'm thinking mapping upland sites in particular maybe not for forestry which is my passion but um but yeah in open areas very interesting and uh, i just thought who do i know that likes radar and uh it's sort of jimmy adcock yeah jimmy adcock so i thought we should invite (laughs) jimmy to come on the podcast at some point what do you reckon? Amateur. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything caught your attention or is that a nice segue introducing our uh, our guest today? Well, I think given how much of an interesting career in ruins our guest has had today, I won't take up too much airwaves by waffling on about stuff that's caught my attention. I think much better to introduce John, John Gator, of much fame, but most well-known, I suspect, to the general public from Time Team, but also a professional professional in his own right, um, who's had a career far, far beyond the television. And I must admit, I'm really excited to hear about that tonight. I know of TV's John Gator, who we've sort of broadly, at least professionally speaking, grew up with on telly. But to know how John got there and uh, and his, his career... His, his long career in archaeology will be really, really interesting. John's published one of his seminal books on geophysics, revealing the buried past geophysics for archaeologists, which I suspect is a, on many, many reading lists at universities. It was certainly on ours, and I've got a copy of it just over there on my shelf of important books, among many other things. So without further ado, welcome, John. Thanks for joining us. So I can speak now, can I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Come out of the box now. Well, I feel very honoured to be here. You'll be the first. (laughs) (laughs) I first met the the two of you in the flesh, so to speak, last year, and I've never looked back since. It's so good to have you along, John. And as you say, we had the pleasure of meeting you in the the flesh back in September last year, and um, (laughs) the pleasure was all ours. And uh, whilst also spending the the two long weekends being wound up and being forced to buy you uh, beverages, we did get... A few insights into the, the fantastic <laughs> career that you've had to date and um it seemed like that can i just interrupt <laughs> i don't remember you buying me any beer i think you're fine john i bought you a beer on my 35th birthday and you didn't buy me one just saying i mean not that i remember these things <laughs> it, it wasn't really a real beer though it wasn't a handboard cascale it was from a bottle <laughs> i'd take that with premier in if i were you <laughs> other hotels are available <laughs> Um, but other than winding us up particularly well over long weekends as I say we did get a fantastic glimpse into your career and it seemed like worthwhile turmoil to invite you on the podcast and and steer you down the path of sharing your fantastic career with our fantastic listeners so would you mind giving us a synopsis of your career in ruins I was born in 1955 (laughs) in Worcestershire you're that old. I collected my pension for the first time. You're that old. <laughs> right. You did say you're going to edit this, didn't you? If yeah, I said yeah, anything yeah. out of turn. Yeah. No. Um, I started my archaeological career while I was still at school in the sixth form in Worcestershire. And I met the local archaeologist who is probably well known to the two of you, Alan Hunt, mm-hmm. who at that time was the, the field archaeologist for Worcestershire. He came to the school and invited people to go on an excavation during the summer holidays. So I just jumped at the opportunity because I was told we'd probably get pints of beer in exchange for our day's labour. And after that, I never looked back. I spent a gap year before going to university to do digging uh, on various sites and to take an A-level in archaeology. The reason I took the gap year is because my headmaster at school 
had introduced me to a new course that was starting in October 75 at Bradford University. Being as I finished my A-levels in 74, it was 12 months before the course started. And it was a, a brand new course that approached archaeology in a different way. It was a course in archaeological sciences, basically applying different scientific techniques to archaeological issues. And so I left home for Bradford in 75, and it was probably the best four years of my life, meeting like-minded people, being away from home, drinking as much as I wanted, cheap beer in Yorkshire, what more could you want? Um, and the department was absolutely fantastic. It was run by physicists, uh, the most eminent being Arnold Aspinall, who's no longer with us, unfortunately. He headed up the department in the early years, and he was a, a physicist who specialised in archaeological perspection. And he developed a lot of the techniques, including the twin probe technique used in resistance surveys to this day. But in addition to doing geophysics, they did artefact analysis, dating, environmental work with the likes of Mark Seawood. And there was a whole group of people who were on the periphery of archaeology, but with scientific backgrounds that had different interests. So Arnold and Stanley Warren did a lot of the work on Egyptian objects, artefacts, analysis of them. And it was quite revolutionary work at the time. The other thing that was strange about the Bradford course, it was a four-year course. Two years studying, a year out in the field getting experience, and then going back for your final year. I had the really good fortune of spending a year in Norwich, working nine months with the Norwich Survey based in Norwich Castle Museum, working with Malcolm Atkin there and the late Tony Gregory, who did a lot of fantastic work with metal detector users, and Barbara Green, who was the keeper of archaeology and had excavated numerous sites throughout Norfolk. And that experience of working in archaeology um, convinced me that that was the way forward. That's how I wanted to spend my life. So I went back to the for my final year after 15 months away. And during that time, I did quite a bit of archaeological geophysics. And sort of Arnold took me under his wing in a way. So I helped him work on many surveys, along with a guy called Steve Dockrell, who was one of the early graduates from Weymouth College. And he moved up to Bradford as a senior technician. In fact, he's just retired from Bradford, having worked his way up through to being reader in archaeological sciences which was quite a career in its own right, mm. far more interesting mm. than mine. Um, <laughs> but so I'd done a fair amount of geophysics within the department and on, on various projects. And when I graduated in the, the summer of 79, a guy called Phil Catherall came to Bradford to talk to Arnold about the possibility of somebody working in archaeological geophysics full time for the British Gas Corporation. Oh, well. Basically, what had happened in 1976, British Gas had built what was known as the Southern Feeder, a huge pipeline that went across southern England. And when it was built, it would seem every other field, they hit archaeological sites and actually had delays. They had conversations with English Heritage about how they could go forward on their future projects and not suffer these delays. And they had contact with the ancient monuments laboratory who specialised in geophysics. 
And they said, well, the way forward would be to do geophysics in advance of laying the pipelines so you can avoid the problems. So Phil came up to Bradford because he was working as an archaeologist with British Gas, uh, talked to Arnold, and Arnold said, the best person in the world for the job is John Gator. And so basically, two months later, I drove off to Scotland with brand new geophysical equipment in the back of my car and started surveying on sites, known archaeological potential. It really was the first time a commercial organisation had employed archaeologists to make sure they didn't have problems when it came to planning and they didn't get delays. They had the foresight to realise if they did surveys in advance before the lines were actually fixed on the ground, they could reroute them round known archaeological sites that had been mapped by geophysics, or they could decide how to deal with them and they knew in advance. So this was really very much the earliest time commercial archaeology or commercially led archaeology was carried out. That's amazing. Just to cut in there, sorry, John, that's, I mean, that's quite pioneering. I mean, I guess there's a, a weight on your shoulders there to be an element of the bearer of bad news. There's probably something here. You can either do something about it or you can avoid it and uh, sort of influence those plans. And maybe maybe I'm wrong here, but certainly I know if I were in that position in quite a pioneering role, certainly in the early years being like, oh, I'm really sorry, there's something else that's come up and there's something else that's come up there's something else that's come up um how how was that (laughs) it was strange a few engineers were not particularly happy because they thought you know we were wasting their time and money but the more and more they talked to us and realized the benefits of the work we were doing then they quickly realized that cooperating with archaeologists with the planning department was a far better way to move forward a far better way to avoid delays um delays in construction i I believe the construction costs were something like um and i'm talking 40 years ago a hundred thousand pounds a day it would probably be several million a day now Mm. and if that work is held up because you've hit a, a roman villa or, or whatever, then it's going to quickly run into you know large sums of money. Spending much smaller sums of money in advance was a cost-benefit saving to them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think it's fair to say there were county archaeologists in those days. There, there weren't that many planning archaeologists. So they managed to convince the county archaeologists that, you know, look, we've taken into consideration known archaeological sites, potential archaeological sites. Uh, we've done our best. You know, are you happy to approve the routes? And that really, I think it's fair to say, started a, a revolution in the way commercial operators operated. Mm. And subsequently, various acts of parliament were brought in and the onus was placed on the, the polluted plays. It's amazing to think that geophysics was leading the way there in terms of that massive mitigation. Yes, that's so commonplace in this day and age with regards to the planning system. And this foregoes um, things like PPG. 16 as well like quite substantial that, oh, a long way before yeah yeah so that's 90s isn't it so they, those are the, those that don't know pbg is the sort of the planning reform that saw archaeological mitigation come into play with regards to development and whatnot but um your work must have hugely influenced that side of our profession i mean it was thanks to english heritage and the people in the ancient monuments lab that persuaded british gas you know the benefit of the techniques they just had the foresight to employ their own people 
to do the work because they knew there was no one else in the country that could do this. English Heritage didn't have the capacity to work on commercial projects and there weren't other organisations, so they decided to go in-house. Yeah, so I I think my first contract with them was for about 12 months. They were starting to build these really big pipelines coming down from the North Sea. So they're coming down the east coast of Britain and the west coast, the whole length of the country from Scotland down to Somerset, Scotland down to sort of Surrey area. Big 40-inch pipelines and so on. And they took a lot of planning. And the first year I worked was just a small pipe in Yorkshire and a few lengths in Scotland. And then they sort of delayed their work for a year. And during that year, I took time out and did a large project on Hadrian's Wall using geophysics, looking for the vallum, and spent, I think, between three and six months doing that at various sites with what used to be the central excavation unit, uh, again, part of English heritage, as was, now is. And when I'd collected all this data, I went down to London and did all the processing in the Ancient Monuments Lab. And they took me on for several months to work on a variety of their projects. And that was fantastic to work with the likes of Tony Clark, Alistair Bartlett, Andrew David. And that helped me gain a huge amount of experience. I'd come from the Bradford School of Archaeological Geophysics. And there were two schools in those days, Bradford and the Ancient Monuments Lab. They did things slightly differently. So to have the experience from the two main centres, you know, I really benefited from that. And at the end of that 12 months, I then went back to British Gas because the big pipelines had started and I spent another five years working for them. Wow. And then, cut a long story short, I must admit I'd had enough of pipelines. I'd had (laughs) enough of working with engineers. I'd had enough of travelling up and down the country to write the reports from an office in Somerset when I could easily have been sitting in Yorkshire. And I must admit I found it a bit exasperating. And during the time I'd worked throughout the country and I'd met lots of archaeologists. I used to go and do surveys for them at the weekend because I'd got the equipment. British Gas didn't mind because it was good public relations for them. So I met lots of archaeologists working in different units who kept on asking me, could I do more work? Could I do more work? So one day I bit the bullet, left British Gas, bought my own equipment and set up my own company. And that was back in 1985. Various famous archaeologists worked for me, like Professor Vincent Gaffney, amongst others. Then his brother, Chris Gaffney, who was doing a PhD, started working with me. And we formed a partnership, set up a company called GSB, and spent 20 years in commercial archaeology. Chris decided he'd had enough after about 15 years and went back to academia. And he is now a professor at Bradford. So he's turned full circle in a way. At the height of the company, we had sort of 20, 25 employees carrying out just archaeological geophysics in advance of development sites throughout the country. And I think once he'd left and gone back to academia, we hit the first real recession that hit archaeology in a big way. Was that 2008? Yes, it was about 2008. There had (laughs) been other bad times. Things like foot and mouth hit us when we Mm. couldn't work for several months. And there were smaller sort of blips 
when development didn't go ahead as much. Mm. But the real one was the bad recession around about 2008 mm. and trying to find money to support 20 employees. It was getting a bit too, <laughs> too difficult. Even though Time Team had started, lots of people had jumped on the bandwagon and they were working in commercial um, geophysics and the competition was great and I decided I just needed to get back to field work and less of the management role. And so I, I sold my company to the group I now work for, joined forces with one of my old rivals, Stratascan, which had been run for 20 years. He was the son of the famous Peter Barker, archaeologist Phil Barker, who dug Roxeter, amongst other sites, Hendon and so on. And so we joined forces with Stratascan and we became the largest archaeological geophysics group in the UK. And I still work there now as a director, but I'm very much winding down and leaving it to the younger generation. So this is why I'm sitting here talking to you now. <laughs> 40 years in commercial archaeology and a few episodes of Time Team on the sidelines. So before we get anywhere near Time Team, within that within that 40-year career you mentioned a, a huge amount of big names a lot of people yourself included who are seen as pioneers in the world of archaeological science and pioneers in the world of geophysics and it struck me as you were t talking particularly at the, the beginning of your your story that um while we associate the development of archaeological science with with your era really the, the bradford school and the, the aml when it when it first kicked off in a big way but you mentioned that it was it was actually physicists that led the way. And I know I can't really expect you to put words in other people's mouths, but do you have any sense of what made your mentors, the guys, the folks who came before you, turn to archaeology rather than sticking into hard physics and um, looking at atoms the whole time? What, what made them take that leap? I think basically they already had an interest in archaeology and the more they became involved, they could see how the different techniques could be used. So things like X-ray deflection um, could be used to analyse the components of artefacts and they could then group finds together and they could demonstrate that they came from central sources or central mm. points uh, across Europe. And I think the more and more work they did, the more fascinating it became and being able to apply you know so many different techniques to so many different archaeological problems mm. problems that had been well people just didn't know the answers one of the first things that was sorted for archaeologists was dating and the arrival of carbon 14 dating well well bradford didn't do that but it did a lot of the new work in thermoluminescence dating mm. tl dating and offshoots of that and again it was applying specialist techniques to solving problems on the mathematics side um had people looking at things like the megalithic yard and how valid they might be mm. um alexander tom did a lot of work in the 70s looking at the alignment of monuments with star systems and so on and developed the theory this megalithic yard existed so they used computers to check these sort of things and it was just a really exciting time mm. 
And you could see the excitement they had from working with different archaeologists. They worked a lot with Peter Adaman in York mm. because he was just up the road from Bradford. But more and more archaeologists like Rosie Cramp, a professor at Durham, she was involved in a lot of the early work that Arnold did both geophysics and analysis. And when you get archaeologists coming to you, asking for help and showing their enthusiasm for their own topic, then it's hard to say no. <laughs> it's infectious, isn't it? And that tidal wave of innovation must have been incredibly exciting to be around and a part of. Um, I'm a little bit jealous. I might have to save that for my own podcast when, I, when I'm talking about envy. <laughs> some really nice content there, John, in terms of, of an insight of something I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think about. So that was really nice. Um, before we open that time team door and let it all come bursting out, which I can't wait to hear more about, I've got a, a few quick fire questions for you john if that's all right so um based on a lot of the things you said there's some some really useful things that i'd like to know and also also a bit of insight for the listeners so first quick question is you mentioned you set up a commercial unit for geophysics um to the layperson what is a commercial unit for geophysics it it's basically it, it was the first commercially led unit we basically worked direct for developers who were planning new housing estates, building new roads, new business parks. And when they went to get planning permission, they were told they were working in an archaeological sensitive area. They needed to get an evaluation done. Part of that evaluation was usually to actually do a geophysical survey in the first instance to get an idea of what might be there. So developers used to pay us direct to do that work in much the, the same way British Gas had been paying me to do the work. But we worked for the different consultants, different developers throughout the country. And most of archaeology in Britain is now commercially led. No, that's great. Thank you. There is a reason for that question because now I've got a load of things that's going to contextualise that a little bit more. So when you first kicked off, you would have had a single probe gradiometer, presumably. Yeah, fluxgate gradiometer. Um, how long was it until you moved on to two probes? How long a period were you using a single probe? The first instruments we bought for British Gas were one metre instruments where the sensors were one metre apart and they were made by lots of different people, Plessy Group, um, and then there was a guy called Phil Pot who'd worked for the Plessy Group and mm -hmm. he built the first uh, half metre instrument and then Roger Walker came along and he developed resistance instruments and his first gradiometer, uh, an FM18 as it was and we used all of those instruments in the early years until a company called Bartington mm -hmm. um, developed these two sensor systems which cut survey times in half yeah and I think they were first developed in the late 80s late 80s so a, a substantial amount of ground covered then with a single probe radiometer in in quite a substantial time period um what what sort of grid sizes were you surveying in in the early days we started with with 20 meter grids. How many of those 20 meter grids were you getting in a day with a single probe gradiometer, do you think, in your prime? When we first started, we used a system that had been developed by English Heritage, and you had a pulley at each end of the 20 meter grid, a piece of fishing line that ran between the pulley. You walked up and down with the fishing line in your hand, 
and the magnetometer in the other hand. And the signal from the magnetometer was fed back down a lead to a chart recorder. The chart recorder was driven by this piece of gearing system and it drove a pen recorder back Amazing. and forth oh. across a piece of paper. Amazing. And the signals were recorded as XY traces. So that would take about uh, 15, 20 minutes to survey a 20 metre square. But you didn't have digital data. All you had mm. were XY traces sure. on a piece of paper. We don't know we're born. <laughs> and then so what was the what was the setup time for that machine? So it took you 15 minutes to do a, do a grid. Then presumably you had to move it all move it all across to the next grid and set it up and make sure it was all connected. Yeah, properly. and there are lots of issues with it being waterproofed, having a chart recorder oh, out in the field. And Oh my goodness, amazing. Yeah, and the pens keeping them dry uh, and so on. Lots and lots of problems. I can imagine that. Um, so do you, do you have a rough number of what your optimum grids were, even with the Bartington dual probe set up? Like, do you, would, you, would you have a, a number that you were proud to boast about in a day? This sounds like a loaded question. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> oh, I can do 40 grids a day. <laughs> I'm not trying oh. to compete, but... <laughs> I suppose we started doing about 25 grids in a day, which was a hectare, so a football pitch. Which was such an improvement and what we'd been doing at university. You've got to remember, these were the days when there weren't field computers. You know, most resistance surveys were carried out with somebody with a clipboard and writing the numbers down within little squares on a piece of paper. You'd then go back to the office, the department or whatever. You'd type all those figures onto ticker tape or cards, feed that into a computer, and an hour later, it would generate a series of dots. Amazing. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Or we would draw hand contours on the sheet of paper and use red for high readings and blue for low readings. And so you'd get colour pictures. And all survey work was done like that. As you say, Derek, we don't know we're bored. So these are all leading, these are brilliant answers, John, because they're leading to two final questions that I've got. One, what's the biggest change you've seen in archaeological geophysics over the, or the biggest or the best change that you've seen, significant development you've seen over the last uh, well, however many years you've been you've been working in the business, and also with all that work with the pipelines and the commercial archaeology and and whatnot, are there particular features that you you learnt to just pull out immediately, whether they were natural anomalies or or circular anomalies or particular time from a particular time period, for instance, or is that a bit of a silly question? Not at all, because. The first thing I think I learned to interpret straight away was when we found pipelines. <laughs> Simply because lots of pipelines, a continuous linear anomaly, pipelines often give you a series of positive and negative anomalies. In some ways, a line of pits. And it's only when you start to realise that the black strong responses uh, actually joins in the pipe that give positive responses, and then the next join will be a negative response, and the next one a positive, how things work. 
I'd actually seen quite a few reports that had said we're looking at a pit alignment <laughs> and it was actually a ferrous pipe. So that was one of the first things you learn, how to recognise different sort of features below the ground. What was your first question? The first one was, what's the, the biggest development or the biggest change you've seen? In the, the biggest change has been people, individuals walking up and down with instruments to people sitting in uh, mowers, tractors, uh, ATV vehicles and towing the kit that has speeded things up immensely. I guess you got multiple arrays and multiple, multiple arrays and, and you, computing you can... power that can process the results almost instantly. Mm. You can see the results remotely. I guess being able to tie it in with a GPS that gets you that accuracy. You don't need grids anymore. That's been the biggest change. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. So uh, thank you for quickly answering those, those quick fire ones. But I think they're really useful contextualization for your profession as a whole and that the, 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 the specialism and the science behind geophysics. It's not just someone walking around with a pair of rugby posts or a single probe that you see on TV. It's um, There's so much more to it and the development of that technology um over over that time period is 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 incredible i must confess a few years ago i the new forest national park was awarded um the biggest development in archaeology award for the as an exemplary use or lidar was awarded it and then the new forest was the exemplary example the best advancements in archaeology in the last 50 years i must confess i've always felt like it was an absolute steal from geophysics <laughs> and it, it was just a popularity contest and we managed to get a few people to vote for you were us, just but, better on twitter <laughs> yeah having whilst accepting that award on the stage i did think oh, i've kind of robbed geophysics here because yeah the, the the technique and the application is just just incredible and the development it has been has been amazing um but while we've got you john you mentioned that you d you did a few time teams on the side and um you were looking to move move away from the commercial side somewhat but how did your time team link come to be and and how was that that incredible or what i assume was an incredible experience for those number of years you worked on such an iconic program it was such a privilege and I actually spent 20 years on the programme doing about 230 individual shoots. The reason I became involved is because Chris Gaffney and myself had been working with Mick Aston, various projects in Somerset, most famously his work on the parish of Shapwick, and alongside his test pitting and field walking and recording earthworks. In those days, it was very much small-scale geophysics targeted to answer specific problems. We weren't looking at landscapes, which we can do now, but Mick of conventional geophysics, as I'll call it, um, resistance and magnetic surveys. Um, but he also did uh, a lot of work with trace elemental analysis, looking at soils, uh, variations in whatever's in the topsoil, different chemical analysis, etc., which you, you're both familiar with now, and it is used commonplace. So Mick was there. He'd been approached to get involved with this new television programme. Didn't know what it was going to be like and so on. But from the discussions he'd had, he felt that geophysics could have an important part to play in it. Back in 1993, or was it 92? Mm. And we were involved with, it wasn't the first uh, programme that was made by Time Team, but it was the first one that was broadcast. And this was at Athelney um, in Somerset, mixed stomping ground. We went there looking for Athelney Abbey. 
which is a well-known monument on the hillside. And when Mick told us where it was going to be, we both held our heads in our hands, Chris and myself, because we knew English Heritage had surveyed the site some six years earlier and they found nothing. So here we were going down to Somerset, possibly the start of this major new television programme. And we were going to a site where we were led to believe geophysics probably wouldn't work. So that wasn't going to be a really good starter for us. Having got there, though, much to our amazement, I'll never forget the moment. And lots of the people involved behind the scenes will never forget it. Tony Robinson as well and, and Mick and the landowner. We plotted out the results in the back of our survey van on a little dot matrix printer, and it was quite astonishing. We started to see wall lines, foundations of the abbey, as clear as anything. And it was just fantastic. It worked for us. We got the complete plan of the abbey and all the outbuildings, etc. And it worked for us because we went in the spring where... um, The ground was just starting to dry out, um, and so the wall lines were showing as clear high-resistance anomalies because they were dry. The soil in between was wet, and so that gave us low readings. The contrast was superb. English Heritage had done the survey in the height of summer when the soil was dry, bone dry, and there was no contrast with the stone wall foundations, and so that's why they didn't find anything. I thought for a minute, John, there... I thought for a minute you were going to say they did it in the middle of winter and made the same mistake I did. (laughs) (laughs) Where was this experience of knowledge when we needed it? (laughs) We didn't look back. You'd made your name for the methodology in terms of the results and spoke for themselves and you'd, you'd become part of it. Yeah, and everybody could see the beauty of getting instant results in the back of a van in the middle of the field. It became an integral part of the programmes. I think over the next 20 years, there were only four or five programs where I didn't work on the sites. And that was because three of those were underwater (laughs) and wasn't too keen on going underwater with geophysics. A couple of other reasons I wasn't available, but we worked on it for 20 years and it was fantastic, not only to work with so many different archaeologists on so many different sites, but the beauty from our point of view was Our commercial work, we'd do surveys, we'd present our reports, and that was probably the last we heard of it. Mm. Sometimes follow-up excavations were carried out. Sometimes the reports were just sat on for two or three years. Sometimes nothing happened because we'd found so much the developer didn't know what to do. The only time we used to hear was when we'd got something wrong. So that was quite rare that we'd hear from anyone. (laughs) But we'd get the occasional phone call. Well, you said there was a wall here. We've gone and dug it, and it's actually a ditch full of stones. Well, that's pretty much like a wall. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That time team was so different because we'd get the instant results and we'd say, right, dig there, dig there. And we'd instantly see you know, what was below the ground. So you had a a superb opportunity to see the shapes of ditches caused by different anomalies. And yeah, it was really informative. It's incredible to think that rapid turnaround. And thinking back to our own experiences on Time Team last year, that everything almost, not happening all at once, but that compressed archaeological process happening over two or three days with specialists in the field, everyone together, sort of very almost instant 
knowledge gain, knowledge development. It was, it was, it took some recovering from. I must admit to, to sort of go back to having to wait a year or two years to go from survey to excavation to results to to have it like that. It 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 gives archaeology that kind of oh, almost a breadth of enjoyment and knowledge but i don't think you'd get if you didn't have everything going at once and i'm gonna I'll, I'll phrase this bit as a statement rather than a question but i don't think time team would have had 20 years if it wasn't for geophysics i think the breadth of knowledge it's it gives to to the trenches which were always going to have to be small you were never going to strip a whole site and do a, a massive excavation so you were, were always going to do keyhole excavation but because you had the geophysics you could you could add the flavor and the breadth to it in a way that i don't think I, I just don't, I can't imagine the show working without it. So incredible to know how some physicists in Bradford ultimately leads to a 20 year TV show, which is probably the, the most successful of our discipline. It's it's staggering. What was so nice is that Arnold Aspinall, who knew more about archaeological geophysics than anyone else, he actually appeared on a couple of time teams. Amazing. Because he could see the benefit of the programme, not only the way it showed archaeology to the general public in a different light um, to what it had been displayed in the past, but also because it was an opportunity to learn so much more and mix with specialists, as you've said. I'm incredibly conscious that we're keeping you for quite a long time now, so I should probably move on to the next question, although I'd love to dig more and more into the history of geophysics. Um, You mean you're falling asleep? No, no, not at all. Far from it. It's become a bit of a Lawrence and Derek nerd fest, which is is an absolute pleasure on a Wednesday night. But you've you've obviously had a massive career. You've had an incredible career, a career that's in part defined a discipline. But if you had to pick something from from your forty year career in in archaeology that you're particularly proud of, one massive win, one big thing, one anything from your career, what would you pick? It has to be the work I did up in Orkney. Before I went to Bradford in my year out, John Hunter, who became lecturer at Bradford and then professor at uh, Birmingham, he was working up in the Orkneys and I went up uh, and dug there. And that's where I met Roger Walker of Geoscan fame. And I worked with him doing uh, resistance surveys on the, the Brocha Bursay. Amazing. And that led to lots of uh, summers spent in Orkney doing archaeological geophysics. And I think my proudest moment was we started work on the World Heritage sites at Scarabray, uh, the Ring of Brodga, and we actually discovered the settlement at Brodga, which is still being dug to this day by mm. Nick Card. We did the initial work on that and the initial work around Stones of Stennis, and that led to the whole landscape becoming a World Heritage Site. Um, so we started the work and it was completed by uh, Orkney College later on. The results we got from that were, were spectacular and it just demonstrated to us how geophysics could be used over major landscapes and provide so much information at so many different levels. And when you think how complex the excavations are um, at Brodga, mm. um, it's the wealth of archaeology there is just phenomenal. It's, it's an incredible thing to kind of still be being revealed based on your results to it must be incredible to see that kind of exposed over time. This this might be a, a cheeky question, I'm not sure, but I remember the, the first time 
the first time I did a geophysical survey that led to an excavation, I remember an incredible nervous feeling in the pit of my stomach because um, we'd invested, it was for a field school at Bournemouth and we'd invested quite a lot of money in channeling 40 students to come and dig this 40 by 60 metre trench on a geophysical anomaly that I'd identified. The, the feeling of sort of nervousness and sickness in my stomach that, shit, what if we don't find anything? Do, 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 do you still get that or does that go away? Oh no, no it doesn't go away. Uh, no, I had it so many times on Time Team um, where you're thinking, God, I hope I hope I'm right. I seem to recall Tony making sure he highlighted when you hadn't got it right. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't very often that though. <laughs> I mean, that's a fantastic thing to um, to highlight that you're proud of. And yeah, Orkney, I visited for the first time a couple of years ago, and it is incredible. And I'd love to go digging out those uh, those reports at some time. I bet they're fascinating with the results. Um, so going from pride, is there something that you've observed that others have undertaken or a, a site that was surveyed that you didn't quite get to do or a site that was dug before you could do geophysics on that you're, you're envious of in any shape or form? The one site I've always wanted to go to was my site where I do my desert island discs and that would be Easter Island. <laughs> That's like a great place to go, John. Yeah. (laughs) And just to be able to do some geophysics out there, trying to locate some new buried heads or things like that. You know, the fantastic stone monuments. Just a... Just to butt in there very slightly, John. Lawrence, did you ever do geophysics on Easter Island? Yeah, I might have done two <laughs> two months worth of geophysics in Easter Island. <laughs> <laughs> You're the worst. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't. I didn't want to uh, gloat too much, but I'd be happy. We have to compare. Uh, compare stories with you john and um, <laughs> um uh, we've, we've got an ongoing project in the cook islands so it's not quite easter island but similar maori heritage so maybe uh, you can join us for some geophysics out there well sue Overden, who used to work for me and then moved up to orkney when i heard that she was going out to easter island to do some geophysics i, I, I was spitting <laughs> I, mean, I, I couldn't believe that such work was going to be done by somebody from Britain. <laughs> well, I, I'd like I have to say you, it's as amazing as you might think. Although a lot of volcanic materials, so uh, magnetometry is very noisy, and um, conductivity um, on the uh, EM thirty four. Thirty eight. EM thirty eight. Yeah, thirty eight. That was it. Uh, whilst it drifted like a son of a gun, it the conductivity was incredible. We found some fantastic results with that. We actually went out to St Nevis and St Kitts. Um, in the Caribbean with Time Team. Yes, volcanic islands. Techniques didn't work at all, but mm. it was worth a try. <laughs> we, we did yeah. have to spend 10 days out there. And worth another try and another try and another try. <laughs> um, it means you have to stay in the uh, the bar with your laptop working out exactly a plan of action. Why it wouldn't that would, work, yeah. Exactly. Mm. It sounds like a, a valiant It's the sort of project I like. <laughs> John, we, we've rattled through these last few questions, but I think we, we've, we've kept you long enough. So the, lo- the last question that we like to ask our participants is... Um, we, Derek and I have got a working time machine and we, we give all our participants a return ticket. You can go anywhere at any time and all, all we need to know is where you'd like to go and, and why that is. I'd go back in time to a site I visited about um, two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Well, a series of sites I visited in the North Yorkshire Moors and 
I go to Revo Abbey and I'd be alongside the monks brewing the beer and tasting it for them and just seeing the whole process of you know how it worked in those days I might map out a bit of the site at the same time and so on but it would be the beer that would be my interest I like this idea of um, going back in time mapping out a site then going forwards in time doing the geophysics and then looking at how the anomalies correlate Oi Jimmy beat that (laughs) (laughs) My interpretation looks a little bit like this I don't know what you guys think I can't see anything John oh it's definitely there <laughs> so I know ex- experimental archaeology was quite a big part of time team did you ever do any experimental brewing in any episodes I did experimental drinking <laughs> <laughs> I think you introduced us to that didn't you <laughs> <laughs> John, thank you so much for your time this evening. It's been um, it's been a real treat chatting to you about your career in ruins, and it's it's been nice. I was hearing... going to tell you a famous story of mine. Oh, go on, go on, hit us. If you've got two minutes, oh, we've got two minutes. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it sums up what it was like to be a famous archaeological geophysicist that was recognised by people. I was up on holiday in the Western Isles of Scotland in a remote part of the Isle of Barra. And I went into a shop and I was with my partner at the time. And we were actually having an argument when this family came in and looked at me and said, oh, you're off time team, aren't you? And I said, yes. And they said, oh, is Phil Harding there? <laughs> I thought, great. Wherever I used to go, people would say, "Is Phil Harding there?" <laughs> so the, the following day, I was waiting in a queue of vehicles to get off the island onto the ferry, and this guy came walking towards me from the boat, and he sort of looked at me, and then he looked at my car, and he looked at me again, and. So when he got a bit close, I said, uh, yeah, it's John Gator off Time Team. <laughs> and he looked at me totally confused and proceeded to say in a South African accent, sorry, mate, I've I've not seen one of these vehicles before. Can you tell me what it is? <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. That really is what it's all about. You do get recognised and so on, but you're not that important. <laughs> you need to remember that. <laughs> when we meet up in Sutton Hoo, if, if we meet up in Sutton Hoo, I'm going to make you a T-shirt rather than I'm with Stupid. It's going to say, I'm not with Phil. <laughs> <laughs> You can either edit that out or leave it in. Absolutely not. That's the perfect way to end the podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, John, so much for your time.